From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today we're examining performance-based funding policies, which tie state funding to college outcomes in an effort to boost accountability. Despite their widespread adoption, however, researchers have found these policies can have unintended consequences on underrepresented student groups. The easiest way to get more money is to graduate more students, and the easiest way to do that is to try to select the students who are most likely to succeed. And given the state of K-12 public schools in the United States, students who tend to be best prepared to succeed tend to be students who are white and tend to have higher family incomes. We welcome Seton Hall University's Robert Kelchin who led a national study of U.S. colleges and universities to understand the impact of performance-based funding and whether targeted bonuses can boost enrollment rates for minorities and low-income students. Having a bonus provision seems to mitigate a number of those unintended consequences. So if states want to have a performance funding system, and most of them either already do have one or want to have one, the best practice is to have some kind of provision to encourage colleges to serve students who are traditionally underrepresented in higher education. Kelchin joins CPRI research specialist Robert Nathanson to discuss his findings and their potential implications for higher education policy across the U.S. That's right now on Research Minutes. Good afternoon, Professor Kelchin. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Kelchin, I'd like to discuss your article, Do Performance-Based Funding Policies Affect Underrepresented Student Enrollment, published in the Journal of Higher Education. Could you explain what performance-based funding policies are and how they relate to accountability in higher education? The goal of performance-based funding policies are to tie at least a piece of state funding for higher education directly to student outcomes. Traditionally, public colleges and universities have been funded on a combination of prior enrollment levels or just kind of the whims of the state legislature. If the college got this much money in the past, add 2% on in a given year. So the goal of performance-based funding is to tie state resources to direct measures of student outcomes instead of, in some cases, the haphazard manner that colleges are funded now. And in terms of how it relates to accountability in higher education, if colleges don't demonstrate student outcomes, they lose at least some money that they otherwise could have gotten. So in theory, at least, it has the potential to align the college's incentives with the state's incentives. I wanted to follow up with that and ask, why is it important to think about the impact of performance-based funding policies on underrepresented student enrollment specifically, which is the topic of your article? To answer that question, first we need to take a look at unintended consequences that whenever money is tied to a particular outcome, colleges want to get as much of that money as possible. And the easiest way to get more money is to graduate more students. And the easiest way to do that is to try to select the students who are most likely to succeed. And given the state of K-12 public schools in the United States, students who tend to be best prepared to succeed tend to be students who are white and tend to have higher family incomes. So students who are underrepresented, and in this study defined as Hispanic, as African American, as Native American, and also students with lower family incomes, those students tend to have lower college success rates 
So colleges have an incentive not to serve those groups of students if they want to make sure they get as much state funding as possible. So that's why in this study, I'm focused looking at whether states set up their performance funding systems with explicit bonuses for when students from underrepresented groups succeed. And that's an effort to try to mitigate those unintended consequences. And what my study does is it looks at whether those efforts are effective. You mentioned early in the paper that the first generation of performance-based funding didn't have any of these at-risk provisions, and some of the newer ones do. So could you elaborate on the thought process of some states inserting these policies? The, the first effort was just to get some money tied to student outcomes, which is not a bad first step to take, but then research started to show that simply tying funds to student outcomes resulted in colleges becoming more selective and this hurting traditionally underrepresented students. So since most states care about not just overall educational attainment, but helping all groups of state residents succeed, states have set up these policies that provide bonuses for colleges that successfully educate low-income, minority, adult, rural, or first-generation students, as well as veterans in some states. So in the study, you were looking at the impact of such state-level performance-based funding policies on enrollment at specifically four-year colleges and universities across the whole United States from 2004 to 2015. Using this national lens, what were your main research questions you were trying to address? There are three main questions in the study. The first one is looking at the relationship between any type of performance funding policy, and that can be whether or not it takes equity into account, and the number of low-income, underrepresented minorities or adult students at four-year colleges. The second question digs into that piece about having a policy that provides bonuses for successfully serving underrepresented students. So looking at the relationship between that bonus policy and the number of underrepresented students enrolled. And then the third question looks at those first two questions, but divided out by institutional selectivity with the theory that more selective colleges have more abilities to shape their application pool through the admissions process, while many less selective colleges, they may be able to change their recruitment practices somewhat, but many institutions that are less selective basically are trying to get every student they can in order to both expand access and to balance their budgets. When thinking of bonuses for at-risk students, could you elaborate on how states operationalize them? One frustrating thing about being a researcher is it's not always clear how states operationalize these bonuses, but some states are more clear than others. So, for example, the state of Indiana has a page on their website that lists exactly how much money a college can get for helping a student succeed and whether that varies for low-income students or not. So, for example, it might say that a low-income student graduating gets a college an extra $5,000. And then other states, it's not exactly as clear how that formula will end up working. When examining these questions, how do you go about designing a research study to examine the impact of such policies on student outcomes? The way that I designed the study was to divide states into three different groups. The first group of states is relatively simple to define. It's they did not have a performance funding policy that I could find in a given year. 
The second group is states that had a performance funding policy, but there was no mention of giving bonuses to colleges that serve underrepresented students of any type. And then the third group was those states that had performance funding and they had that bonus provision for underrepresented students. And it wasn't always clear which types of underrepresented students were included. It may have just said at risk in general, or it may have said low income, minority, adult, and so on. But for the purposes of this analysis, all those bonus provisions are lumped together into one category of there was a bonus provision. So what did you find? So what I ended up finding was that these bonus provisions seem to matter to at least some extent. Not having a bonus provision, but having a performance funding policy did have some negative effects on the number of underrepresented students enrolled. Having a bonus provision seems to mitigate a number of those unintended consequences. So if states want to have a performance funding system, and most of them either already do have one or want to have one, right now the number of active states is about 40, the best practice is to have some kind of provision to encourage colleges to serve students who are traditionally underrepresented in higher education. Yeah, that's really interesting because some of these findings you had suggested that having these at-risk provisions can help maintain the proportion of African-American students that are enrolled at the university, or it can help alleviate any issues with cream skimming, so selecting from the potential applicant pool. Yes, the, the biggest concern is that colleges are trying to increase their completion rates just by leaving out certain groups of students who may have different, often financial barriers to success. They're likely to succeed if given support, but helping students succeed when they have financial barriers can be more expensive. So it's easier just to select other students if you can. But giving some kind of bonus to colleges that are trying to close achievement gaps can be valuable, even if we don't know if that's actually enough money to cover the services and resources that students need. It seems to be that good faith effort from the state to reward colleges seems to be paying off. So putting these policies in perspective, you note that most states only allocate a small percentage of the funding to at-risk provisions, and that there's also stop-loss provisions that can limit the amount of funding at stake. The expected impact of these provisions on institutional decision-making may therefore be muted. I was wondering if you could discuss which conditions are necessary for performance-based funding policies to have a potentially larger impact on institutions. At this point, I don't think the research community has a great answer to that question. And I think that's because it's really hard to get into the details of how much money is actually at stake from a performance funding system, because sometimes a state will say that 75, 85% of money is at stake. But then when you start digging into the policies, the amount of money that a college can gain or lose is actually limited substantially. So the good news on this is I'm working with, with two fellow researchers around the country, Kelly Rossinger at Penn State University and Justin Ortegas at the University of Florida. And we're working on going through 20 years of state policy documents and budgets to develop a database that has all of these gory financial details about how performance funding policies are structured and how much money colleges actually have at risk versus how much money may be listed on an appropriations bill. So stay tuned for the results of that study. We hope to have a data release by the end of this year. That's really interesting. And I'm sure there are a lot of people 
in the research community as well as the policy realm that will be very interested in learning more about it. So I was also wondering what additional recommendations you have for states that are thinking about adopting for those that don't and haven't adopted a policy yet, or those which have but are thinking about revising their performance-based policies. I, I think the research at this point doesn't give a lot of guidance on what to do other than these these equity provisions seem to be beneficial. But even though researchers can't say a lot about here are the things that explicitly work in performance funding policies, I think we can say a little bit more about here are some of the unintended consequences to try to avoid. And it's also worth emphasizing that despite what many college leaders and many faculty members would like to hear, performance funding is not going away anytime soon, even though the results haven't been tremendously successful to this point. There's a lot of public frustration with the value of higher education, and even states on the more liberal end of the political spectrum like California and New Jersey have adopted or are working to adopt performance funding systems. And I don't think too many states are willing to give more money to colleges without tying at least part of it to student outcomes. I think that's a really salient point and something that I always like to keep in the forefront of my mind when thinking about these issues is that ultimately we're interested in proving student outcomes, particularly for those who are um, underrepresented in higher education institutions, uh, increasing the persistence to the graduation rate, making sure that students, when they're enrolled, do get that return, which will ultimately make them more successful in the labor market. And so your perspective on these performance-based funding mechanisms, I think, are very salient to that point. And it speaks to some of the tools that states have to help move the needle in that direction. Yeah. And again, it's, it's worth noting that sometimes it's good to design a policy that simply does no harm if the outgrowth of that is that it helps the public's and policymakers' perceptions of higher education. So even if we can't develop a policy that massively increases student outcomes, even if it's something that does no harm, can still have great value. So what future research do you have planned in this area? Well, together with my colleagues, Justin and Kelly, we've spent a, the better part of two years working on getting more detailed data on state performance funding policies. And we got a, a nice research grant from the William T. Grant Foundation to help support these data collection efforts. And what this will let us do is, first of all, provide a set of policy details over time on performance funding systems that has not existed. There have been some one-off looks at what policies look like, but they don't go into the level of detail that's needed to inform policy. And then what we want to do is look at how do the nuances of policies, for example, how much money is at stake, how much money is tied to particular provisions, and how reliant our state or our colleges on state funding, and look at how those affect not just enrollment, but looking at completions for all students and then by particular subgroups of students. And then eventually trying to get at, do these performance funding policies eventually help students' longer-term economic outcomes? So we're, we're looking at several more years of research on this topic, and researching performance funding is really trying to hit a moving target because states are always coming up with these policies, and then most states are revising their performance funding policies on a fairly regular basis. In particular, you focused on enrollment at four-year institutions. Do you have plans to look at enrollment at two-year institutions and or graduation rates at institutions in higher education more generally? 
I have an article looking at enrollment at two-year institutions coming out in Community College Review sometime fairly soon. And as a sneak peek, the results are fairly muted on that. The goal longer term is to look at completions, but for many of these equity provisions, they're relatively new, and we just don't have enough policies that have been around long enough to really affect completion yet, although that will be starting to change over the next year or two. This is a really interesting and important study. As we think about ways to foster educational attainment of students, especially disadvantaged students and those from non-traditional backgrounds, it's important to understand the impact and trade-offs that the policy tools states have at their disposal. For those who would like to learn more, I encourage listeners to read, Do Performance-Based Funding Policies Affect Underrepresented Student Enrollment? in the Journal of Higher Education. Robert Kelshin, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to this series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's c-p-r-e-hub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at cprehub.org.